Hey folks, it's John from A's for Alcoholic again. Today's conversation is with Frank O'Connor. He is a fairly new friend of mine, but we have gotten very close over the last six months, maybe a year that we've known each other. And um, he was born in Ireland in an extremely alcoholic household, moved to California. Um, we talk about his time at Lefty O'Doul's playing piano, his time as a police officer in Ireland. We talk about how now he runs the Celtic Mindfulness Center in uh, Petaluma. And he's just an all-around great guy with a lot of sobriety and a lot of wisdom. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Frank O'Connor. How far back do you remember um, drinking alcoholically or finding alcoholic behavior in yourself? Early. Um, probably 14, 15. Mm-hmm. What was interesting about that as I look back, first alcoholic drinks, the reaction for me was profound. Because it brought a sense of confidence immediately, you know, a sense of, whoa, this is good. I feel empowered. I feel I can take on the world. It was mm-hmm. a really good feeling. And that was the very first drink. So I knew immediately, I'm liking this stuff. I like it. So it felt I'd found something. It felt That's what it felt like for me. I was at a, approximately age 14. Age 14. Okay. And then growing up, you you grew up in Ireland. Grew up in Ireland. Um, one of five children, alcoholic dad, mm-hmm. who also had an alcoholic dad. So there was great lineage coming down the line. Um, Ireland, in the, this is early days, you know, Ireland, 1950s, 1960s, had just become a republic, pretty impoverished, had broken away from the British Empire. So trying to kind of find its own feet. Not a lot of work. Everybody was emigrating. The unemployment rate was 25 to 30%. Most people were moving away. When I left high school, the question that we would have asked each other is, where are you going? Australia, Germany, England, Canada, United States. I think out of our class, two guys went to college in Ireland, stayed home and went to college there. Mm -hmm. So that was... That was the environment. That's what we grew up in. And then you have your first drink at 14. Prior to that, <clears throat> was growing up, what was home life like with an alcoholic father? Not very good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was periodic, which means, for those who don't know what that, he would get lengthy periods of sobriety, but then would go on these massive bender, benders. Would work like a crazy man. He had his own business, save up all the money, and then drink it all. Mm-hmm. So my mom, didn't matter what he was drinking or in these periods of dryness, there still was no money because the money was all being stored for an alcoholic episode. And he would disappear. Uh, we as children were kind of relieved when he would disappear because we didn't have to deal with him. And knowing that when he came back, it was not going to be good. He was aggressive, mean-spirited, verbally abusive, and physically abusive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was, <clears throat> remember being probably seven-year-old uh, having a fight with my sister Christmas morning mm-hmm. her going 
to tell my dad what had happened. I pulled her hair, I think it was. He then, we lived in a three-story home. I remember him kicking me up those stairs and then throwing me back down the stairs. And my uncle, Jerry, who was a sweet man, got worried that I was badly hurt. He intervened. My dad then punched him out and then threw him uh, through the front door of our restaurant, which my mom owned a restaurant. So, not good stuff. A lot of violence. Yeah. <clears throat> so this is happening your whole childhood. Um, you have that first drink and you're like, I feel empowered. Now. Right. And this As is opposed the to being in high school, right? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> As opposed to feeling like victimized all the time. Mm-hmm. My sister, I spoke to my sister in Ireland this morning. It's interesting we're talking about it. Um, our uncle, Clifford, a beautiful man in England, just passed away. And Clifford and my Aunt Maura, that was my mom's sister, had a really wonderful relationship. They were sweet people. We enjoyed to see them coming. They had a very loving relationship. Clifford is in his 90s, passed away this weekend. The last thing he said to his daughter was, I'm ready. I'm going to be with my beautiful Maura, his wife. Mm -hmm. And that's the relationship they had. (laughs) So Angela, my sister, said to me this morning, we were fortunate to have had those people because we got a glimpse, at least, of what a loving relationship looked like because of our aunt and uncle. As opposed to, and she used those words this morning, our terrible, tragic home that we grew up in. Yeah. So even for her in her 60s, to this day, that's still, you know operating in her psyche mm-hmm. um yeah i know that i i find that my father my parents and 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 having that model for a family has led led me to very definite choices in how i've <clears throat> how i view relationships and how i've gotten into relationships definitely while i was drinking um i've certainly changed those a lot of those things in sobriety yeah. but um, it's hard when you when you grow up with with that level of always looking behind your shoulder or not being able to trust somebody who's supposed to take care of you. Um, so high school was 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 much more fun with alcohol or <clears throat> when we got a chance to drink it was ah. <laughs> right. Um, and then at age I left high school at seventeen. I was kind of young. Um, I did my final year. I I turned seventeen in March and graduated in June. So I was a really young, you know, coming out of high school. Um, And was immediately in a rock and roll band because I love playing music. (laughs) We had this little rock and roll band, which was fun because we were out doing our thing and we played a lot. We were out four four nights a week. What was the name of the band? The Blend. The Blend. The Blend. Yes. Had to be the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, whatever. We Mm -hmm. were the Blend. And uh, what kind of music, I guess? So this is the 1960s? 60s. Oh, okay. Nineteen yeah. um, seventy, actually, I graduated. Um, so Beatles, Rolling Stones, okay. covers. We were doing the Kinks. Um, I remember all the... Yeah, pretty much all that stuff. That's what that we were doing. awesome. It was fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was very, very fun. And we got a chance to tour around the country. We locked into a very big well-known Irish band at the time and became their support act so if they were within kind of 100 mile radius of our home which they were a lot we were the opening act okay. we called it a relief band yeah we were the relief band the opener they would, opener, guess, yeah, they would yeah. call it here <clears throat> so we'd play for 
uh, 90 minutes, hour to 90 minutes before they came on. Because Ireland, they would start, we would start playing, we wouldn't start till 8.30 or 9 o'clock. So the main band's coming on at like 10.30. But those dancers were going till 2 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, they were like, and they were six nights a week. There were clubs and dance halls around that country. Monday nights included. People were out dancing. It was wild to these bands. Yeah. Sunday, the only day that there wasn't. Yeah, because okay. we had to go to church. Yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> did you... Uh, so you're having fun. You're doing all this stuff. You're drinking. You're going to clubs. You're playing music. Yeah. I mean, this must be like you have hit the height. It was fantastic. <clears throat> it was great. <clears throat> and <clears throat> then it kind of crashed. Because my, my, my dad, who was now at this stage, had got sober. When I was 17, he got sober. Mm-hmm. And you need to get a real job. You know, mm-hmm. so there was a lot of, this, this music thing's not going to work. You know, you need to get a, a real job, right? Many, I, I guess every musician in the world has had to deal with that. Right. Um, then I, um, from that, I joined the police department. Which that is was like, the real job? That was the real job. Okay. And from the get-go, I was not a happy policeman. I didn't like the job at all. Mm-hmm. I always thought, I am in the wrong job. Uh, but I, I play, and then at age 21, I was married. So it, it came pretty fast, you know, maturing, growing up. Except that I didn't really mature. I didn't grow up. So now you have a, a man who's at 23, we had three kids. Boom, boom, boom. I had massive responsibilities in, a, in the police department and seriously depressed. Serious depression was hitting then. Alcohol was the savior. It was medicine to me. It became, From being fun, it became medicine in the sense that I knew... It relieved depression in the sense that, not in the sense, in actuality it did. I remember one time being not drinking for maybe a year and then going and getting some beers. And the effect was profound and immediate. The depression lifted. So it was a drug of choice. You know, mm-hmm. if I, it, and I dealt with depression a lot. There was a um, history of Abuse in our home, but there was also a history of abuse, physical and sexual, at our schools. Mm-hmm. So everybody I knew had been sexually abused. And that, as little boys, six, seven, eight-year-olds. <clears throat> so that was churning away underneath the, uh, the surface all the time. I did, Now I look back, I understand some of the depression, where it was coming from. Eight of my friends took their lives. I had eight friends who committed suicide. And my brother took his life. And the only thing that was in common with all of us was the abuse. So I found alcohol to be a medicine then. And in a marriage that was falling apart at 23, 24 years of age, in a job I actually hated, um, mentally disturbed, to say the least. One day I went into... um, prison cell and I had a conversation I was so mentally ill I can remember this conversation well because it was happening within my own thinking mind and that was 
it's time to get out of here. And I had I was loaded down from my local doctor with pills, um, Valium, a bottle of Valium, and I also had a bottle of what's called Largactyl, which is now no longer available for very good reason. And I had this conversation, let's do it. And one side of my brain saying, you don't have the guts to do this. You don't have the courage. And another side of me going, yeah, sure do. Just watch me. And well, let's do it. Go ahead, do it. And I took down a hundred pills, both bottles, and was collapsed. And was carried out of the prison as prisoners were screaming, shouting, you know, officer down, um, in a coma for three days. Came to my mom was holding my hand, and that was the beginning of some pretty bad times. So you wake up from a coma. Um, do you, is there any thought that <clears throat> perhaps the alcohol or the pills or anything needs to stop? Is there a period or is it immediately I need the medicine again? It, I felt I was, uh, I would have gone right back out drinking, but everybody around me was like, you can't do what you've been doing. Mm -hmm. you, you know, and then, um, the police department put me in a mental institution for starters. So they're like, mm, this guy's not okay. Um, so I was in there for a while, came back out. And what was fascinating, I'm now maybe 24, 25. The culture, even in the police department, was heavily drinking, heavy drinking was going on on the job all the time. So I come out of a mental institution, back on the job. My first night back and with a senior guy in the police car. They always had an, what's called an observer in the car. I was mm -hmm. the observer. And the first thing he said to me, because when we would get into those cars at night, we went to the pub. That was the normal thing. So he looked at me and said, did I hear that you're not drinking? I'm like, yeah, I'm not drinking. And he's like, okay, get out of my car. Literally, get out of my police car because you're not going to be with me. So I literally walked around the town in uniform for the night because this guy was going on, his, on the job, go to the pub to drink. And kicked you out for not drinking. For not drinking, yeah. <clears throat> um, and how long were you a police officer? I stayed in that job for almost nine years. Nine years. And you picked up alcohol again? Many times. Many so times. in between there were periods <clears throat> of, <clears throat> you know, my wife going to my dad who was now sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. He'd come to me and, okay, we're going to a meeting. Mm -hmm. So I was led many times back to meetings. And... I could see great things in there. I, I wasn't anti 12 step. I just felt these are very nice people. You know, God bless them. And they have tough lives. And mm -hmm. it's admirable to watch them. But they're not my people. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. These are not my people. And that's that went on for many years, John. Many years. Yeah. It's funny how that that we we cross that we draw that that line mm -hmm. between us and and those people in sobriety going oh yes and not wanting to feel judgmental about it no oh, no no they're they're very nice I lovely just, people <clears throat> I'm not supposed to be here um so how long do you go drinking for until you find that you are supposed to be there or did, that you realize I mean what was the um, so you're at 25, 26. Oh, it goes on much longer. So there were periods in there 
of six months no drinking maybe 12 months no drinking back out um, hospitalized or three suicide attempts um, including the one in the jail yeah okay and then um, I got out of that job and my marriage kind of broke up so I came to America that's when I came to the USA and what year was that? good question 84, 85 okay. yeah I think 85 it was the year of the challenger that's how I remember mm. that was when it was I okay. came um, I was in Florida watching the challenger blow up when I just arrived here and I found within a short space of time within a year of being in Florida my brother Ray took his life and that just crashed everything I mean I was in such deep anger and grief at the same time I found actually ACOA at that time adult children of alcoholics and I really was drawn to that because here was a bunch of people who had grew up grown up in alcoholic homes and were freely expressing anger and uh, grief about that and were trying to find ways of dealing with the aftermath of alcoholism as children or now adults but that got me sober. So this was finally the time. What that this, eighty six, eighty five, eighty six. That's when the adult children of alcoholics. Do you think yeah. that was the program that? That opens? was the one that really grabbed hold of me. You know, because my, there was so much anger towards my dad, so much residual stuff coming at me from childhood, that I was I never was able to address that in an AA meeting, and that's nothing against. The fellowship, it was openly being addressed in ACOA. And at the time, ACOA was brand new, so there was not much structure to it. It, it got pretty crazy at times. People screaming and shouting. and um, But there was something refreshing about it. Mm-hmm. It was open. People were talking about their parents and the damage and the devastation that was done uh, in an open way. I hadn't heard that before. So I latched on to that. And I was going through the grief of my brother at the time. And I began to get relief. So that was the beginning of realizing there's something better. And it brought me to twelve a different look at 12-step. That this actually was for my own benefit. Because a lot of it I'd mixed up with my dad. He was sober and sponsoring people all over the place. And it was difficult for me to separate the AA program in particular from him. And he was not a happy, sober guy. I was going to say, can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? The, the difference between your father, who was sober, and the way that many people in the program perceived him versus how his family Yeah, I mean, the perception him. was one of... <clears throat> he did incredible work. I mm-hmm. never would want to take that away from him. No. He opened Alcoholics Anonymous. And there was two... When he got sober, there were two meetings. One in Dublin, one in Belfast. He alone is responsible for opening probably 20 to 30 different meeting groups around that country. He sponsored hundreds and hundreds of people. And many people, you know, I mentioned his name in my hometown and it's greatly revered. John O'Connor, John John O.C., you know, they all call him John O.C. However, on the home front, he was still a pretty nasty dry drunk. Yeah, it was not pleasant. It was very. The anger was still there. Uh, the violence was still there verbally, not so much physically anymore. Though he did, he did try to. 
I must have been 28 the last time the guy tried to hit me. And I just remember ducking and holding my hand up and stopping his fist and saying, you will never, ever do that to me again. Ever. And he realized, oh shit, yeah, this guy's 28 years of age. I I guess I I really can't. And he was sober for 10 years at that time. Yeah. Um, So that was a huge... uh, My my sister and my brothers, they were very anti-AA. In because, a, of, because that. of that, yeah. yeah. And my mom stopped going to Al-Anon. Essentially, she's like, good God, if this is sobriety, man. We don't want it. So do, it was confusion. Do you think that maybe there was this sense that he 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 had lost things in, in his family that he was trying to replace with helping other people in AA? You know, that all yeah. of a sudden here was this thing where I can kind of control this and I can create these things and feeling that the family was sort of lost to him already. I think or... that's some of it, John, actually, I do. And the addictive nature, he beca- you know, he became addicted to going to seven meetings a week, ten sometimes, out every single day, never at home because he's sponsoring people. Mm. You know, it was a full-time onslaught. AA took over everything. Yeah. Yeah. So the balance that you hear people talk about in the program, which I greatly respect today, um, was not present mm-hmm. in that home. Uh, but I did when I met people in um, Florida going to meetings. I'm like, "Whoa, this is very different." It was calm, you know. I liked what I, I liked the people I was meeting. I liked the meetings. I liked what was going on, and I was I was attracted to that. Um. So. Can you can you talk about? I mean, when did you move to San Francisco, or when did you? Gosh, many years. So twenty one years ago, we moved West Coast. Okay, and from you, Chicago, and you were you were in Florida, you were in Florida and Chicago. Prior so to that, yeah, you've seen you've seen a lot of sobriety over, through this country. Yeah, different um, meetings, different spaces, different places. Yeah. Um, where do you find? I mean, obviously, you've you've landed here in California, mm-hmm. and so you find it. I mean, how do you, how does it differ? How do you see some of the sobriety meetings differ a little bit? Yeah, it is it is interesting. From I mean, many much of it is the same. Yeah. Even if I go back to Ireland, like all the basic tenets, the principles, everything is exactly the same. The sharing is very similar. Mm-hmm. You're you're hearing one person's drunk a lot. It could be in a little tiny village in Ireland, or it could be in San Francisco. But mm-hmm. essentially, um, the premise is the same. Mm-hmm. Now, what what is a little different is California, for example, from a spiritual belief system, is very open. So there's no... People are coming in from so many different disciplines or belief systems, and it doesn't matter at all. If I go back to Ireland, 99% of people were Catholic. So the whole thing was based, all all spirituality was based on Jesus and uh, a Catholic Jesus, not a Protestant Jesus, mm-hmm. right? You know what I mean? And then in Florida... It's a pretty important difference yeah, in Ireland, pretty, isn't it? Yes. Yep, it was a big deal. <laughs> and in Florida, the Deep South, and in Alabama, we lived in Alabama for a little while. Mm-hmm. I got AA through the lens of uh, Southern Baptist, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Not, not hugely different, but subtle differences yeah. that you, you definitely could feel. 
Yeah, it's pretty cool. I've been to a few different meetings in different places, and you go to one in Hawaii, and it's completely different from San Francisco, and it's pretty it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that you continue to you have continued to do music. Oh yeah, I mean, all I'm this time. fortunate, very very fortunate. And I did. I never stopped being a musician. When I was in the police department, they used to call me the singing policeman because I was always gigging. I was always playing. Every spare moment, I was out playing. And I love my music. It was a savior to me many times. Depression. I couldn't drink alcohol. I'd go to my piano and play for hours and hours. And I would get lost in mindfulness. I didn't know what it was at the time. Mm -hmm. But I was actually practicing mindfulness by playing the piano. And I've been able to build, uh, all through my 30 plus years, 35 years in America, I've been a professional musician. So it's been really fantastic. Yeah. Can you t- can you talk about um, Lefty O'Doul's? Um, God. Because, you know, one of the things that's so interesting to me, and I've dealt with it being a bartender, yeah. is we we as alcoholics for one reason or another end up gravitating toward these places that we were before bars and lounges and taverns and and even in sobriety and even when our recovery and sobriety is strong we find ourselves working in these environments um and lefty o'doul's it was is a san francisco institution right yes piano bar piano bar wild crazy lively um some of it great fun. I mean, I met wonderful people. Yes. And people who would come back year after year. I had one couple, I remember, from Germany coming every July seven years in a row and spending all of their ten nights in San Francisco with me and left you do it. It was like it was crazy. Um Good and bad. So I knew know I mean you know. Mm-hmm. The good was I was able to play my music and entertain people and get a great um, sense of purpose from that. Uh, I remember, what, here's what's interesting, John. I was walking back up to the piano from a break one night. A lady called me over and said to me, I know what you're doing up there, right? And I'm like, what is she talking about? And she looked at me and she said, I know exactly what you're doing. You're doing God's work, my friend. Wow. And I can see it. Go and, and I just walked away and I'm like, that is extraordinary because we're in a bar. Most people are drinking. And yet my attitude at that time had changed from being Mr. Entertainer to being more of, yeah, my job here is to be of service, help people relax. Have them. You know, so I had shifted and somebody was able to pick up on that, which was extraordinary to me. Mm-hmm. And I had many people later say that, things like that to me. You know, you're bringing great joy to people in here and it's once I realized there was actually truth in that then it did shift you know for me personally and I remember thinking well I'm here behind the piano they're all in very social energy everybody around me but I'm actually in a in a business-like energy that's comfortable it wasn't serious business it was relaxed business Mm -hmm. but I, I was coming at it from a business and I'm here to be of service and once I got that in my mind it shifted big time. Easier to deal with it. Because, you know, in, in musicians and in being in bars, oftentimes alcohol is used as currency with people. They want to tip you, let me buy you a drink. Or, you know, hey, we're going to give you your cut tonight, whatever that is. Plus you get a 
tab at the bar, mm-hmm. you know? So how do you, um, and I guess at the time that you had started working there, you'd had several years of sobriety yeah. or you were, so yeah. you were pretty yeah. solid mm-hmm. in your, in your program yeah. and you, you were comfortable in that. Um, but I mean, and I guess the owners knew you as, as being sober and not drinking. And so I don't know if that was ever an issue or. Well, one of the things he said to me was Frank, you're the only real musician that I know that's kind of half normal. <laughs> uh, would you take over the scheduling of all these musicians? Because I, I, I don't want to deal with them. Yeah. <laughs> like, I knew exactly what he meant. So I began doing all the scheduling as well. We had one guy, a remarkably talented player, extraordinary. I mean, I would sit and listen to this guy because of his ability on the piano, but alcoholic. And there was a rule in the house, four drinks for the musician. Which wasn't a bad rule, right? Yeah. One an hour, you know, yeah. for the four-hour gig. Uh, but no more. Paul couldn't keep to the four. So I had to go and say, look, here's the deal. The owner's getting angry. You you can drink on the job for sure, but you got to keep it to four drinks. Okay? So, yeah, that's no problem, Frank. I think it lasted two days. The guy could not keep it to four drinks. And like you said, people would keep buying him. Mm-hmm. So I learned what I did was... I would say to my audience, I'm not allowed to drink on the job, guys. So I appreciate if you want to put the money in the jar, that would be fantastic. I appreciate. So I started getting a whole lot more tips. Yeah, right. right? <laughs> and they would, and then, and then instead of they're putting tens and twenties in, I'm like, okay, this is awesome. Um, and I didn't. It became most people then quickly knew. Oh, he doesn't drink. You know, he doesn't. Frank Frank's not a drinker, so I didn't have to deal with it then. It was yeah. good. Yeah, it's a trip. I deal with it a lot too in the in the restaurant because it's we're in wine country and so everybody wants. Well, I made this wine. You should really taste this wine. And I always say I'm terribly sorry. I can't while I'm working, and sometimes that's not enough. And you know they're like, oh, everybody. And I'm like, well, I'm really terribly sorry, but I have to drive, and that's usually yeah. enough to stop people. Yeah. But yeah, once they get to know that you don't drink, um, and hopefully that's that's easy. You know, with without you having to go. Well, it's because I'm an alcoholic and yeah. I will destroy my life and everybody around me if I have a drink. So, which which is kind of a bummer when you're at the piano bar yeah. on a Saturday night. So. Yeah, it's like, yeah, we're going to kind of bring things down a little bit now for a moment, <laughs> folks. Right. Um, and and how long were you there working at? 15 like? years. Wow. And long time. what was the impetus to leave? They, th- they shut down. They shut down. Yeah, there was a argu- more than an argument, a big fight. Ended up with a legal battle between the owner of Lefty O'Doul's and the owner of the property. Um, mm-hmm. And it just, it's, it was a mess because that, it's still two years later shut down and nothing has happened. Yeah. So a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people who were, I still, two years later, I'm still getting emails. Um, where's Lefty? I mean, people coming in from Germany, mm-hmm. Australia, Canada, wherever. Because they came from all over the world there. Um, but that's it. It's gone. Yeah. Um, and you now do... Uh, can you explain how you got into and what it what is the Celtic mindfulness? Yeah. Um, and your whole trip with, with Buddhism and, and all that stuff, how that came to be through sobriety? Yeah. Um, in a very simple way of telling it, my, one of my boys um, had a serious alcohol problem mm-hmm. and he got sober 
Um, and we were very scared that he was going to die. Really, really, really scared. And Brian got sober in Thailand because he was working in Malaysia at the time. Um, I went to Thailand and he was in this beautiful, wonderful um, rehab center where mindfulness meditation was a big part of the recovery process. A 12 step, all of that too. Um, and I had Brian's recovery had a profound effect on me. It also brought me to a place where I became painfully aware of pain that I had caused. And not that I wasn't aware before, but there was something profound. It hit me on a visceral cellular level. And I went and asked for forgiveness again from my whole family, but in a different way, John, because I could feel it now. And I was thinking about, gosh, I really would like to maybe work in rehab or do something like that. And then I, I, I went to some meditative things in Thailand and that really immediately grabbed my attention because I'm like, oh my gosh, the realization that my thinking mind, which I'd heard in AA many times, your best thinking is what got you here. Mm -hmm. They talk about stinking thinking and mm -hmm. we've all heard it, but somehow it clicked for me that that thinking mind, that same mind that had me in a cell arguing with itself to, to, to take its life was not my friend and never had been. And that I could, through the process of meditation, go beyond that. And once I experienced that, I really wanted to share it with other people because I'm like, this is incredible. This is really mind-blowing and, and life-altering. And it had and still has an enormous effect on my life. So then I thought, wow, let's bring, <clears throat> how can I bring my music and this mindfulness together? And that's how Celtic mindfulness was born. Um, I went back to the tradition of the Celts, my own people, and found ancient chant and prayer there that was even pre-Christian. And I developed original music, but with a Celtic vein running mm -hmm. through it. And merge those th those two things together, and every week we do Celtic mindfulness. Yeah, and so you go. So it's you do it at a. You have a meeting. You have a Celtic mindfulness meeting. Um, is it? It's not necessarily for people in recovery, or is it part of? Open to everybody. Yeah, yeah, it's open to everybody. No, I have many people in recovery coming. Yeah. You know, <laughs> sure do. Yes. Um, but having said that, it's open to everybody. We have, you know. All sorts of people, and I have, I have one lady who's a devout Catholic coming, which mm -hmm. is like, wow, okay, this is interesting. Um, Buddhists coming, mm -hmm. agnostics coming, because I wanted to make it experiential in the sense that there's no dogma or theology attached to it. You just come join us. I'll do a simple guided meditation to bring us all into a relaxed space. And once we get there. We let the music and the chant take over. And what happens, John, is a simple thing. That vibration allows people to calm the mind down to the point where it slows to a crawl. And many people experience what it is to be beyond mind. And um, I'd heard so many mystics talk, talk through the years that... But the other dimensions, second, third, fourth, fifth dimensions, that they're all there 
But the hardest part about accessing any of that is to quieten the mind because the mind is chattering all the time. And that once mind is quietened, we experience life from a very, and I have, and still do, experience life from a totally different, it's almost like I'm, uh, I had somebody say to me last week, Frank, here's what's remarkable. I'm almost 50 years of age, and I'm seeing life through the eyes of a child. Like, I've ne- I, have, I don't know why I've never seen it that way before. So that's the meditative process. Mm. And that's what drew me to it, and that's what I want to... I'm, I'm in my 666 now. If I, don't, if I don't pass it on now, I think it might be time. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Beyond mind, what do you... I mean, can you even put that into any sort of words? This is where language becomes tough. Yes. Yes, we talked about this the other day. So here's what I would attempt to say. It's the great realization that the truth that I heard all through the years, that I kind of could understand, I understood it was truthful, that it was consistent across all religions and all belief systems. And yet there was a part of me like, what are they talking about? What did Rumi mean when he said, the universe dances within me? What did Jesus of Nazareth mean when he said, the kingdom of God is within you? What did Buddha mean when he said, don't go outside for answers, they're all within? Now, I could intellectualize that, but I couldn't experience it. I couldn't understand it on that level. When the mind is quiet, when there's a stillness that, 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 that you reach, there's a realization that that is actually the truth. There's a a way of explaining it. I would explain it this way. If you can imagine or picture a lamp in a room that has that glass case around it, old oil lamp. Mm-hmm. The lamp is lit. It's fully protected. Regardless of what happens in that room, that light continues to burn. Whether people are arguing or fighting, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's going on in the street outside, cars, noise, everything. In the city, shootings, bombings, it, it doesn't matter. That lamp, that light is burning and is completely unaffected. There's a part within me and everybody that is completely unaffected all the time by anything that's going on. And it is always there. It always was there. It always will be there. And once experienced, the only challenge left then is to continually bring awareness back to it, to that space. Viktor Frankl, when he was in Auschwitz, taught in his book that he realized that the Nazis could take everything away from him, but there was that space within him that could never be touched. And I, that's I did when I real that's what he was talking. I'm like, okay, Victor, I'm with you now. I got it. So. Because it's language difficult, mm-hmm. it's hard to even share and pass yeah. on. That's why I love the vibration of music and chant. Because it takes you there without great explanation. So when new people come in, I'm like, just enjoy the experience. And they get there without me having to be Mr. Teacher, in a right. way. you know. <clears throat> Not that there's 
value to trying to explain it. Of course there is. And sometimes they go to great pains to do that. But experientially, once there, it's almost like somebody um, in an AA program getting that moment of contentment. There's yeah. a little serenity kicks in. You're like, you know what? Life is actually okay. Yeah. And once that's experienced, there's no need to further great explanation. Like, oh, that's what doing that eight and nine step is about. Oh, mm-hmm. now I now you get it. Mm-hmm. So without the experience, it's tough. You're relying on somebody else's word. Metaphors are, are okay, but they're still just metaphors, whether it be for the fifth dimension or God or serenity or any of right. these things. Right, so I'm kind of reluctant to go to those yeah. language sometimes. Yeah. Though you, it's, I have to use it sometimes. There's no choice. Yeah. It's when I would look at Jesus and then he would say things like... Um, The lilies in the field are not worried about anything, right? I'm like, that's freaking great for the lilies. You know, I'm happy for the lilies, but that's not kind of working too well for me. What is this guy talking about? And all these beautiful stories and, mm-hmm. you know, easier for the rich man to pass. I have a needle and on and on. Mm-hmm. Um, once personally experienced that oneness because there is Einstein that there's a great theory of um, everything is connected in that place that meditative space experientially that becomes pretty clear that everything and everybody is connected energetically vibrationally feels the energetic feels um, and you begin to even see it uh, it's another way of seeing. And again, I don't want to go too deep because mm-hmm. we're, you know, that could be like, we could be here for 20 hours just once we dive into that. We can topic. do a whole series, Frank, <laughs> if you want to come back. Whoa. <laughs> but, <laughs> but again, trying to keep it in yeah. a compact way. Yes. That's yes, what I would yes. say. Um, the other, th- and one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was, um, was dealing with forgiveness and being an adult child of an alcoholic and being somebody who had a, to say the least, tumultuous relationship with their father, mm-hmm. how you came to find forgiveness for him. And you could share that. Yeah. And again, I go back to my son's recovery as being massively cathartic. Because what mm-hmm. happened when uh, my son got sober, there's two of them actually sober now. Thank you, universe. Mm-hmm. That um, one of the things they did, I was in his treatment center and they had a family day where they brought the family in. And it was an opportunity to afford Brian uh, to kind of say I'm sorry to his family. It had had such an impact on me that when it came around to my turn to speak, I was overcome with that emotion I was talking about earlier, but very aware of of the pain I've caused. So I sat in that room with my ex-wife and my children, and I said, guys... I am really aware of how much pain I caused everybody in this room. Please forgive me. And I totally meant it to the depths of my being. I felt it. And as a result of that, I wanted my brother and sister to experience that from my dad. Because it was very profoundly cathartic. And in my meditative process, there's a thing called 
surrendering it's a deep mind which is handed over to god handed over to the universe but i just had this nice image of you take something drop it down into the universe and then let it go it's no longer any of your business frank so i took the situation with my dad wanting him to come to his family and say i'm sorry and let it go dropped it into the universe and an answer came back in a meditation about two days later it was it was really like somebody talking to me frank here's the deal you need to go to Ireland. You need to sit down with your dad. And for your sake, you need to tell him he is forgiven. And it was not what I was expecting. Mm. But I did do that. I sat in the room and went back to Ireland, sat in the little house at home, just him and I. And he's now in his 90s. And I said, Dad, here's the deal. I just want you to know. You and I have been through a lot. A lot of water under the bridge between us. And I just want you to know, you are forgiven. There's nothing you need to do anymore. We're clean. We're clear. Our relationship is clear. And he didn't know how to react to that. But what he did was he started talking about his childhood. Which was horrendous. Absolutely horrendous stuff. Alcoholic dad. Um, two brothers. Three brothers who died before age 25 from tuberculosis. Family devastated. Mom raising eight kids. So it brought me to compassion. That's what it did. It brought me to compassion. And it brought me to the realization that the, the real benefit of forgiveness is for ourselves. Yeah. It's for ourselves. Yeah, the other person, great. But truthfully, it completes the circle. And it allowed me to see a little bit through his eyes. If I had grown up in his environment, I probably would have ended up doing the same things he did. And that insight and that understanding came through the forgiveness process. Even just getting to the point of seeing our parents as just other human beings instead of some some God who has done us wrong, you know, because I think as children, that's a lot. That's how I know that's how I saw my father. You know, originally as this, this, this bigger than life person, who then had done me wrong for so many years, and I still, I still work on it. You know, and yeah. I, I, I am talking with you. I think I'm grateful that my father being gone doesn't mean that I can't go through the process of forgiving him. That I don't need him to be here for yeah. that. Yeah, for and sure. That brings a little bit of relief in and of itself. You know. Because energetically, <clears throat> if I think about it this way, there was a festering yeah. energy source sitting inside of me that was not to my benefit. And it was blockage. It was causing blockages. Even on a physical level, they will, you know, scientists now will talk about that. Um, and once released, there's an incredible sense of, whew, it's a huge weight lifted off my shoulders. Yeah. When I got to now and again, I, I would openly admit that I'll see my dad in a couple of weeks again. <laughs> I'll be in Ireland, and it's not that this relationship is now all flowery and perfect. Oh my gosh, dad, it's so good to see you. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's peaceful, it has a sense of ease about it now. I'm not looking for anything from him, I don't need anything from him. Um, I'm not hoping against hope that he's going to say something. I just can let him be, you know, let him alone and 
Let him finish out his days in peace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you struggle with right now? I mean, what is, do you, is there anything that you have difficulties with in sobriety recovery or? Yeah, I still have to watch the depression sometimes. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been very, very, very fortunate that no medication for a long time, no need for medication. And just these little bouts will come where it can almost hit before I catch it. And anybody who has depression out there knows what I'm talking about. A way I would explain it, John, is I tried to explain it one time by saying it's I'm walking towards a cliff, steep cliff. If I get too close to the cliff, I will be dragged over whether I like it or not. If I get within, let's say, 100 meters of that cliff, I have no more control. The cliff's taken over and I'm going over. Mm-hmm. So there's a line about 100 meters back, big red line. I have to be cognizant all the time that I need to be this side of that red line. If I let it go over to the red line, it's out of control, dude. I, I've lost it. Yeah. Now, what does that mean? mindfulness meditation becomes critical again it means i have to continually check my mind my thinking what's going on here if i if it goes to self-pity is a huge one or it's unfair stuff that kind of i would catch normally and say i I don't want to think like that and let it float on by there's a point where um that can easily twist and turn into depression. And once it hits the depression level, it's hard to pull it back. It takes serious effort. So yes, there are moments in time where that might last an hour or two or a couple of days. I still have to go like, oh, here we go. Then I have to very consciously get, get to meditation and stay there and really let that thing settle down. Yeah. It's funny, you know, because we often think about meditation as this this abstract thing that, you know, it it it's this what is it and it's sort of very ethereal and abstract, but when you talk about it in the form of it is a necessary concrete thing I need to do. It is an action that is required to keep my depression at bay. Yeah. Um you know, and, and to break it down and say, okay, I'm going to do... And you, you do these meditation workshops every week, right? You do them Yeah, sometimes twice a week. Twice a week. Then I, we do little two, three-hour workshops three mm-hmm. or four times a year okay. as well. Yeah. Um, but I love that, that it's, in, that, that it's an action, you know, and, and because I think a lot of people go, I can't meditate. And yeah. it took me a long time to even, and I don't do it every day. But that idea of kind of letting thoughts go because they keep coming. They keep coming. <laughs> they don't and stop. They're, great. they're spontaneous. Yeah. Like sometimes it's like, where did it come from? And like, I have no idea. They're mm-hmm. just erupting. Mm-hmm. Like, what? That? Where, where did that come from? Yeah. We've all had that. And I would say the following to folks who may be struggling with the meditative process. Break it down to its very simplest form. Don't try and do an hour-long meditation. Ask the question, can I do 60 seconds? Because it starts there. And the easiest way is just the breath. By following breath, just counting. Breathing in and out to the count of one. Breathing in and out to the count of two. 
Here comes a thought. Oh, hi, Mr. Thought. I see you. I acknowledge your presence. I recognize that you're here. I'm not resisting you, but I'm going to let you float by like a cloud, a little cloud. Mm -hmm. on the, on. And I also want you to know that for the next 60 seconds, I'm on purpose bringing my attention to my breathing. So I'll come back. I'll see you later. Yeah. Just simple as, as possible as that. The breathing helps because if you purposely breathe in and out through your nose and mouth, you have to kind of bring attention to that. And attention cannot be two places at one time. So if I'm, if I'm breathing consciously, I'm not thinking. Mm -hmm. So if that's for 10 seconds or 60 seconds, that's 60 seconds of peace I didn't have before. That's a great way to put it. Um, I, my, my last question is for today is, are there any, um, what are the, what are the, what are the guidelines or what do you, what do you do on a daily basis for your recovery for you, you know, in whether it be AA or meditation or whatever, like what, what would be the one thing that is crucial to your daily practice of, of being sober? Mindfulness. So what does that mean? Um, spending, again, sometimes it could be the two-minute meditation. Yeah. Two minutes of mindfulness. Let's just sit quietly before the day goes off and bring awareness to the present moment. The idea in, in the 12-step programs, um, one day at a time. One minute at a time if necessary. So if I can bring awareness to that, that's the, I try to do that on a daily basis. Uh, reading, reading something constructive reading something of a spiritual nature um, I, I love YouTube because it is millennia of, of awesome stuff that's freely Endless. available by all of these great spiritual leaders available every, so I tend to watch some of that every day um, and it keeps me on that track um, audible as opposed to reading I'm a big audible fan mm -hmm. so I always have something of a spiritual vein running um, on my audible Always something to intake, feeding, to yeah, self-feeding, yes. and then meetings. You know, I I have every Monday, uh, usually ACOA. Every Tuesday, I have two meetings every Tuesday, Refuge Recovery, which is a Buddhist-based recovery program, and then a regular meditation sit. Every Wednesday is Celtic Mindfulness for me. Every Thursday is usually an AA meeting, and then I'm working at the weekend. So that's kind of my. So you do find time for for music still? Yeah. Oh yeah, so every, I'm still okay. playing at the weekends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was great when we got to see you at um, at Pongos, which was a very strange place when we walked in, and you said somebody something about a Thai restaurant, and we walk in and I'm like this doesn't really look, and open the menu and they got different stuff, and I was like this is a very strange place, and again I'm used to strange places, and yeah. you were up there and you and your wife were singing and it was it was just we ended up having an awesome time and the food was great yeah food and, is great um everything about it was great you were great up there you were cracking jokes on people and a lot of them weren't even right. getting it it was it was awesome yeah sometimes <laughs> so, i'm doing that for myself well yeah keep, <laughs> right. you know, so i guess it kind of it can sometimes get boring up there and you kind of and to also want to draw the crowd in right you know and it's a little different there because they're friends you know yeah. they're friends of mine and i play that restaurant maybe once every couple of months just to, yeah because they're good people yeah uh, and like last weekend i was in the irish center a couple of hundred people and that's back to craziness of lefties and mm -hmm. uh, so it's nice to kind of go to pongos and have little neighbors show up 
Um, I like that too. So it's nice both ways. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you for being here. Thanks, <laughs> thanks John. Yeah. Thanks everybody for listening, and thank you for doing this, John. You yeah. know, the work is important. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Our music, as always, is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us at aisforalcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later. Yeah. <laughs>